Hi, I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and you are listening to Love in Public. This is a space where we explore what radical listening looks like in the age of disconnect. Welcome back to another episode. Today, it is a real pleasure to be joined by Will Schelling and Julia Burnham, two guests that I have been waiting for months to talk to. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit more about them. Will and Julia are two best friends who are studying towards their master's degrees at UBC. They have both held influential positions in student advocacy, in structures such as the Alma Mater Society, known as the AMS, and the UBC Vancouver Senate. I'll highlight a few things, but the list goes on and on. Will has, for example, worked as the committee co-chair in the President's Task Force, advocating for civil rights and social action within the university. And he has also been a crucial member of the Joint Board and Senate Working Group on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. He has helped in the running of the UBC Black Student Union and has served as the AMS's Associate VP of External Affairs. Will is currently pursuing a graduate degree at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Like Will, Julia's involvement on campus does not fall short of extraordinary. Julia has been a key advocate for bettering the quality of life at UBC. To pinpoint a couple of experiences, she has worked in the AMS as Vice President in Academic and University Affairs, she's been a correspondent for the UBC, and she's in her third year of working for the Vancouver Senate collaborating with deans and faculty to design better academic policy. Julia is currently undertaking an MA in Educational Studies with a focus on the institution of higher education. Will and Julia, to me, are two passionate and incredibly articulate individuals in the UBC community who have been working behind the scenes for years to serve the student body. When I think about the work that both of you have done and continue to do, it truly strikes me as an act of care and selflessness. We're two minutes in and I feel like it's already a love fest. How are the both of you doing today? Well, thank you for that very kind welcome. Will and I are just sitting here looking at each other like, oh, really, you're gonna say all that nice stuff about me? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I just don't know what to say, to be honest. It's just absolutely wild to be able to like sit like, I don't know, with my best friend and just be able to be like, oh yeah, we did some stuff. Some. I will say for any of the listeners, I can see you both on Zoom and the whole time you guys were looking at each other so earnestly and it was just really wholesome to watch. So I thought we could start off with a little segment of 10 little questions, quick fire, whatever comes to mind. And for today, because you're best friends, I thought we could do a best friend edition. So the first few questions will be personal, and then the next few, Will, you'll answer about Julia. Julia, you'll answer about Will. How does that sound? Okay, great. I'm going to fail them, but yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. All right. Will, I want you to picture this. You're in your apartment, and it's a torrential downpour outside. What is some comfort food that you're cooking up? Oh, easily duck confit. I did that like two nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, what is one small sweet thing that's happened in the last week or so? Oh gosh, that's horrible that I'm blanking on this. Um, <laughs> I just got a wonderful coffee with friends earlier today. Will and uh, one of our friends, Victoria, was. we went to Great Dane and had a wonderful coffee. So that was really lovely. Will, what is one song that you would like played at your funeral? 
like modern love, David Bowie, obviously. Twitter is going to be an absolute bop. Like, I want everyone to straight up be like, yes, this is a masterpiece, and we can move on. Julia, I think that your Twitter is full of gems. What is your favorite thing that you've ever tweeted? Oh, no. I, I can answer this one. I can answer this one. Now I'm curious as to what you're going to answer. Well, because you're going to talk about the one time you went viral during Suds and how, oh, like, Diddy, like, said love on, like, a little Instagram post I had. And then it was, like, all feminist. And every time, like, somebody mentions it, I feel so great. Like, that's exactly what you're going to say. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did, I did go viral um, two years ago. I mean, like, that was the first time, right? The first time? Um, oh, yes. I, I went viral for an email sign-off alignment um, that uses, like, the neutral goods, lawful neutral, chaotic good, that whole Dungeons & Dragons alignment chart with all of the different email sign-offs. So that was very interesting. Um, the tweet is in, like, lots of BuzzFeed listicles. People are putting it on LinkedIn. Um, Instagram getting reshared, um, and that was a very, very weird tweet, but I guess I love it. Julia, what is Will's favorite restaurant in this city? Oh, I feel like he's going to be offended if I get this one wrong. Um, <laughs> I, you know, he loves L'Abattoir, but Nightingale is also a place that we most often go. Absolutely so. correct. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Those are both heavy hitters, top tier. Love the work that those chefs are doing. Will, when it comes to music, what is Julia's guilty pleasure? That's a really good question because we actually just did one of those Spotify blends where you put together two separate um, like BuzzFeed like playlists that are basically like what you listen to and then what like your friend listens to and we got like 93% like compatibility and I would say like maybe like right now your your like guilty pleasure or whatever I mean I want to call it like Phoebe Bridgers or like Lucy Dacus or any of those like low-key super like soft girl bop sort of deal but you know what if I'm wrong I'm wrong if not what are you doing listening to all of those then? I think I would call it a guilty pleasure. I think I would listen to those with my full chest. Um, but yeah, no, that's an answer. <laughs> I love how it's like that's an answer. It's like not the answer, but hey, it is what it is. Julia, what is one thing about Will that's endearing, but maybe a little irritating sometimes? William can be a little chaotic at times. William. Um, William. Um, oftentimes it's like always on the go, 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 you know, it's chaos season is commonly um, a phrase that we will say to each other. Um, but also he has a lot of references that like are very, very particular and niche to like his specific language that he's created and no one else really gets it, but like we'll just continue to use it and like make it into existence. So. Yeah, I just want to apologize to my master's cohort right now because I actually have to give them a short list of all of the terms I use because they just don't get it. And you know what? That's fine. Will, what is something about Julia that most people are surprised to learn about her? 
I think it's probably the fact that you're from Oakville, Ontario. Because it just, it, you as a person exude big city energy, like you know where to go, like you got like this thing and this thing, like you can contact anyone and you'll know what's up. But I think for a lot of people when they hear you're from Oakville, they're just like, excuse me, where's that? <laughs> oh, for context, Oakville is a very, very white suburb in the Toronto area in Ontario. Um, I've been in Vancouver for what? Six years now? But yes, Oakville, very suburban. Julia, if you could steal any of Will's personality traits, which one would it be? I would love to have Will's confidence. <laughs> like, his ability to just go off and do anything and not really, you know, hold himself back. I think that's super admirable, and oh. I would love to do that. <laughs> I mean, that was really sweet, but also you do, in fact, you're a very confident person, too. I mean, we both said yes to a podcast, so yeah. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I've got one last one here, and this one's for Will. Will, when you and Julia first met, what was the thing that made you think, wow, I really want to be friends with this person? This oh, really we talked about story. this today, actually. Um, I Short, like detour, I guess, we can kind of tell the story about how we became like good friends. More or less what happened was um, I was working at Rain or Shine Ice Cream at the time as like an ice cream scooper and she came in with someone and I literally like threw myself over the divider. It was like, are you Julia Burnham? Because we were both on this like Instagram page that was like humans of UBC or whatever. And then I was like, I know you, you're so cool. And I just, I don't know, I just like had a feeling, had a vibe, like, you know, felt like it would be a thing. And then I just figured I'd annoy the absolute hell out of you for every day since. And so we realized today it's been about five years. So uh, yeah, if your producer wants to cue five years by David Bowie right now, <laughs> fantastic. Julia, would you say that retelling is, is about right? It was very overwhelming. Like I had no idea who this person was and I had like been living in the city for less than a year at that point and I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> you're just you're just you're a big fish. That's all. Big fish, small pond, that kind of thing. Vancouver wow. can Vancouver can't hold you. I think it's interesting as you're telling the story of how the both of you met because I very much relate to Will in that situation. I feel like I'm very intuitive and I have friend crushes and it brings me a lot of excitement when I get to follow up and, and talk to these people that I don't know. Do you ever have people in your life where you think I wanna be a part of your orbit? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's really hard in the pandemic, especially because you can be connecting with people over this past, you know, 18 months at this point and not even be able to really make those connections and be in the same spaces as these people. And just like, oh, I have such a long list of people that I want to get coffee with at this university that I'm hoping that I can take advantage of this year because there are just so many cool people that we need to take advantage of meeting. Absolutely. Yeah, I also think it's like really wild because as like, especially like joining like new master's cohorts, like new people are like, I don't say like orbit, I say like joining your narrative, mainly because I think it's like a little bit more like stylistic, whatever. It's like, I think it's like a wonderful gift to be able to like say to people, like after like 18 months of knowing them or whatever, it's like you still have like a good bond or like, you know, you want to follow up with people for coffee eventually, you know, as it's like safer or like you do it socially distanced and whatnot. And I think it's 
kind of cool, but also like, damn, I, I have a friend of mine, um, they're super cool, nailed them from my master's cohort, and we have a list about 10 pages long of like things we just have to talk about and like comment on. So I find that a little bit interesting. I love what you said, Will. Let me be a part of your narrative. I just want to be, I really like that. And I also like that you related it a little bit cinematically because it makes me think of sitcoms where you have characters that come in, they're a guest star for a little bit and they come back for a different arc. That's what it made me think of. But I'm going to come back to this celestial metaphor, the being part of someone's orbit, because I feel like it provides a really good segue to something I want to talk about. Uh, Julia, you once tweeted, and I'm misremembering now, but I remember you used this phrase and it really resonated with me. I'm not sure if it was constellations of care or constellations of support, but I remember reading it and thinking, wow, these words string together just right, and, and they bring up this beautiful imagery for me. I wonder if you came up with that phrase, where it comes from, and if you could just tell me the story behind it. I am forgetting precisely what that tweet was. I know a lot of my tweets got accidentally deleted when my account kind of had a mistake a little while ago, but that is absolutely not my own that I can claim. Um, and that's something that I have learned from Manel Matani um, and all of these amazing women at the university um, that I've been able to be in community with and surround myself with. Um, so I can absolutely not claim that. Um, but I think it's really impactful um, in being able to like have all of these celestial sort of metaphors to describe how we care and support each other through these often hostile institutions. Um, it's really powerful. Hostile institutions. Let's let's dive into that, why don't we? I want to talk more <laughs> explicitly about your involvements with the AMS and the UBC Vancouver Senate. And this is for the both of you. I think we could have an entire podcast episode where we just talk about these leadership structures. I'm sure you'll agree. The fact of the matter is these are some of the most important outlets and avenues for students to voice both their hopes and also grievances about UBC. I want to hear from you. Number one, I think that the work you do is quite thankless and often you don't make time to celebrate progress. So I'm interested in hearing about these moments of victory. Maybe it's an initiative or a policy that you collaborate, uh, you collaborated on or spearheaded that you're proud of. So I want to hear about that. But I also want to make space for your frustrations. And when it comes to these leadership structures, what are some of the things that are not working? That's a big question. Take that, take that where you want to. Oof. Um, do you have one off the top of your head, though? Oh, 100%. I could talk about this kind of thing all day. Like, if we're thinking, like, directly, like, some of the faults with, like, I don't even know if, like, you call them faults, but I just call them, like, it's just the way the structure is designed right now. Like, you know, the AMS, like, assists, like, 56,000 students, if not more or less. I don't know. If you're the UBC, feel free to fact check me. It's fine, whatever. But I think it's interesting because 
we have a very clear-cut narrative that continues throughout the institutions that we operate within. And also, this is something that I've really realized um, was super prevalent when I was a student leader on campus. And when I think about that, um, it's specifically that of like the white savior trope. Um, you often see it quite a bit within, um, I mean, I just recently read a bunch of academic articles that Julia sent me about um, the white savior trope within um, post-secondary like students' unions where, you know, it's always this weird kind of pick-me attitude where it's like, oh, like I am better or I am more like able to be saved than the other people who like are, you know, also white in, in, in this institution. Therefore, you should give me this ability to advocate on these specific issues and topics. And, you know, I think one of the issues is that, one of the issues that I keep coming back to is that I don't know if it is sharing power anymore. I think it is more about relinquishing power and giving it to like, you know, LGBTQ plus folks, you know, BIPOC folks, folks with disabilities who have been consistently underrepresented in these institutions because like you quite often see the fact that, you know, I mean, Hannah Arendt says this, right? I mean, power divided is power multiplied, but then again, we don't really see that in our institutions right now. I mean, I kind of talked more about like my frustrations with like these systemic things because uh, have I been proud of things that have occurred like while I was like AVP external with like the team that I worked with? Like, yeah, I am proud of them, but also at the same point in time, I can acknowledge that looking back on it, like totally would have done things a bit differently, totally would have done things with a bit more care, like a bit more, you know, kind of time given. But then again, you're in this position for one year. It's kind of the way of the road, unfortunately. Um, to quote someone that I used to work with who would say that all the time. Yeah, Julia, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. When thinking about celebrating victories, I'm having a lot of difficulty these days with those celebrations um, because now that most of my work is happening exclusively within the Senate, um, it often finds that, you know, the victories are actually, you know, way behind where everyone else is in these conversations and where we could and should be pushing things forward and moving the needle. Um, but even like these tiny, tiny victories are just like Herculean attempts at really moving anything forward um, in a body like the Senate, which is, you know, it's got <laughs> a lot of issues. Um, and as, you know, the, I would say, least uh, progressive sort of space um, within governance at an institutional level. Um, so it's hard to like celebrate these mini milestones that aren't even like the deeply, truly satisfying piece that we're hoping to get to, but it's even enough that we're, you know, pushing people along bit by bit. Um, and I was listening to a podcast actually about um, incremental reform and really trying to challenge myself in uh, thinking about that differently with the spaces that I have um, and how I can be celebrating these many successes while also still trying to move the needle in the end. Um, and it's a balancing act, especially in these institutional spaces. Um, but man, I don't know. Like incrementalism is so interesting because it's way more like like a sort of like issue when it comes to like policy and like 
you know, I find it interesting because these are the same issues that plague every institution where you think like, oh, we're gonna be able to push through this very radical progressive policy. I mean, like, look at every institution in the past, like, what, two, three months when it came to whether or not they wanted to have a vaccine mandate, whether or not they wanted to disclose vaccines. I mean, we're doing the very bare minimum in order to protect our students and staff and faculty on campus. However, it takes the advocacy, the Twitter fingers of everyone basically in order to push these topics forward. And like speaking directly to like, you know, like for instance, like being on the presidential task force on anti-racism and inclusive excellence, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to have this kind of more progressive conversation where it's like, okay, cool, let's imagine some structures. Like, I found it really interesting when you said like, oh yeah, like we approach things with like a lot of care and like a lot of selflessness. I don't know if this is my imposter syndrome or if this is me just, you know, absolutely being the worst, but I think I want to build the structures that I would want to use. In a way, my work is a bit selfish, not selfless, I'd say, because, you know, like we'll be releasing the recommendations soon, um, hopefully when it comes to the task force and kind of talking about how you know, these, like, it's a very, very radical jump forward. And I think that's probably one of the only times at this institution, on the student union side, on the administrative side, like, you know, with UBC as a whole, where, like, we have actually decided to say, wow, let's really go out and build this structure and learn and fail as we do it. So, yeah. I think you bring up a lot of important points, but I want to, I want to talk about imposter syndrome. Well, you mentioned it here, and you've mentioned in the past that you deal with crippling imposter syndrome. And I remember the first time that I heard that and I learned that about you, I was so surprised because I see you as someone who is so accomplished and successful. And imposter syndrome is something that I deal with as well. So I, I'm curious to hear about your experiences with it, but also your relationship with it at this institution and at institutions in general. Um, yeah, so I was, so we were chatting with, uh, I was chatting with Julia about this actually um, earlier today, and it's like this conception of like, I don't know what it is, but like I often feel that as like a cisgender, mixed race, black man, I have consistently failed upwards enough when it comes to working in these institutions and in these spaces that it's like, oh yeah, like obviously the next logical step is this, or the next logical step is that. Like, you know, I feel oftentimes I was in the right place at the right time for a lot of things, but you know, it's interesting because through my work at um, Bacow Consulting as a strategist over there, whenever I'm doing workshops and we hit the slides where it talks about imposter syndrome, I always frame it with, um, a story that um, I actually had when I was working at the EIO, at the Equity and Inclusion Office, sorry, um, where my supervisor at the time, Dr. Rachel Sullivan, who coincidentally is also Julia's supervisor now, kind of sweet, um, was like, oh, we'll go out and find the first at the university. So like the first indigenous graduate, the first black graduate, the first you know black head of the students union, that kind of thing. And I slowly realized, you know, like these spaces have been cisgender, heterosexual, white dominated and male for so long that of course it's going to be difficult to you know be like wow in any space for that matter whether or not it's in consulting or at a policy school or you know like on the senate for instance um, it's difficult to always feel that you are not an imposter but i think it's more that these systems themselves were predicated upon fraudulent groundings like the proof was not evident to begin with which makes it really interesting because then you start to realize like wow, we could have built a more equitable structure from the jump, but we never decided to. You also use this phrase, failing upwards, when you were talking about how you discounted all of your successes. Like, I was at the right place at the right time. Tell me more about that. I'm, I'm interested. 
I mean, like, if we're going to talk about, like, failing upwards, like, it's a, like, I, the reason why I call it failing upwards is because of the fact that, like, I somehow managed to keep getting more and more responsibility given to me just because it was, like, people saw me as confident, comp, sorry, not, well, confident, yes, but competent as well and capable when it came to certain topics. Like, you know, I got my job at the AMS because I happened to know um, my boss at the time as a friend, right? And it's like, you know, you get put into that position or, you know, my first research job, I was doing research for a um, interdisciplinary PhD candidate over at Allard and I was on a bus at the right time and I was like, oh, you study international law, that's really cool. I would like to do something like that. And then I get their card and then boom, like that kind of happens. Um, even working at, you know, like Backhow Consulting now, like I just happen to know my, you know, like, um, sorry, my boss, Cicely Bell Blaine, like immediately through, you know, working at the Students' Union. And when I say it's like failing upwards, I like, I kind of mean it as a joke, you know, like kind of like riffing off of the age old um, conception of like white dudes failing upwards through like finance or whatever, but I find it kind of applicable for myself at times. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a reason why we go to therapy. <laughs> Julia, what do you say to Will when he's when he speaks like this? Because for me, like, th there's nothing that is chance about this. This is creative serendipity to me. For you to have met Cicely Bell Blaine, you were already involved in something that would have opened you up to that experience. That's what I'm hearing. But, I mean, I always get very overprotective of my friends when they talk like that. I'm curious, Julia, if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, Will and I started becoming friends like five years ago. So I've seen him through his entire evolution as like a person, as a professional, as an activist, um, and have been there right from day one. Like it all makes sense to me. I've seen all of the steps and how he has grown and changed um, and how he's been able to like use his strengths and develop his like leadership skills and competencies and I, it all makes sense as like a pathway and a formula to me. Um, so it sucks to, you know, see that that's not something that you also understand about yourself. But I think it's the same like <laughs> with me. Like we both are very similar in that way where we kind of need each other to gas each other up um, and validate each other, which I guess is what best friends are for. Like, yeah, that entire, like, conception of, like, validation is, like, exactly why, like, I, it's interesting that you said, like, oh, yeah, like, we're super similar. Like, we are very different people. Like, I am very extroverted. Like, Julia is not. Like, I think it's interesting because, you know, like, it doesn't matter, like, who you are sort of deal, but, like, you can always find, like, those... Um, like counterpoints in another in another person where it's like oh you like really like resonate with certain things and like let's be real here like I remember when you know Julia was like I don't know if I'm gonna run for like VP academic and I was like yeah do it like who cares like do it like like go for it or like any other position that you know like you have wanted like how many times have you texted me and been like oh I don't know if I should apply for this job or not and I'm just like do it it's like you're sick do it like I think we have to start approaching uh, with that level of, um, how do I say that, unabashed um, boldness or whatever. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's and it's also as if the best parts of each other are rubbing off on the other person, is what it sounds like. I don't know if you guys know this, but this is the very last episode of season one for Love in Public, and there have been a lot of threads and themes 
but most of it has been centered around the university space. And I want to take you guys back to first year. I love talking to upper year students about their first year experience because I feel like that was a very vulnerable time for everybody. And this, you know, the loneliness, the shifts. I think that while everyone has an experience that's specific to themselves, there's a lot that's universal in that. Julia, you wrote for the UBC a few years ago about your first year experience and how you were a transfer student. Can you tell me about what that was like? Yeah, I'm like, when you mentioned that in the sort of intro there, I was quite surprised. Like that feels like a lifetime ago um, at this point. But yeah, I I wrote for the UBC for the first three years um, that I was on campus. Um, But yeah, I transferred halfway through my first year um, and got placed into Ross House in, in Vanier residence and I, you know, was brand new to the city and like it sucked a little bit. Like I did not have a good first year. I was not having a good time, was not doing well mentally, physically, spiritually. Like it was all a bit of a mess. Um, and. There are like some key threads from that year and like the support that I was able to get. Um, You know, the TA that I had for my Poly 100 uh, class, that was the only class that I would actually show up to because it was fabulous and made me believe that like I was at university to learn things and for the right reasons. And actually, you know, university in first year isn't all horrible. Um, but like, I think there's really a mindset shift um, that a lot of people require when they're entering these institutions for the first time. Um, that you know, it's not going to be the fun brochure and all of these different, you know, promotional materials, res life, meet all of your best friends, you know, sit on the lawn with your multicultural group of friends that you meet. <laughs> like, that's not the experience that people have at university most of the time. And I think being more upfront about that is good. Like, it's, I don't know. I feel sad whenever I see people that are let down by institutions and to have that happen so quickly. Um, But that's then how we kind of find each other and build each other up and take each other to the finish line. So, yeah. Do you feel like a lot of your first year experiences inform your student advocacy and your philosophy when it comes to leadership? Yeah, I mean, I, so I transferred to UBC um, as a survivor of sexual violence and I used that as sort of the forefront of everything that I did when I was entering the sort of student union sphere. Um, You know, the entire, reason that I wanted to be involved was to be able to, you know, speak to better policy and, you know, more support for students dealing with mental health issues, students who were survivors, um, and using that as sort of the preface for why I wanted to be involved, why it mattered to me, um, and what I wanted to do to change things about it. And it's interesting because I kind of had to get into these spaces and find my way in by prefacing you know, this is my lived experience and this is why I'm here and this is why I care about this um, in order to be heard. Um, and now I'm kind of at this weird end where I've been around for so long that 
I don't need to preface anything with that at this point. Like I will be listened to without that, um, which is a little disorienting. With your permission, Julia, I'd love to speak a little bit more about UBC's resources for sexual assault awareness and prevention. I will say that when I first got here, that was one of the things that struck me because I came from a Middle Eastern context where all of this was taboo and I didn't have sex ed. I didn't have conversations about consent and the fact that that was happening in first year and that I mean, I love the work that SASC is doing right now, and that's the, you'll have to remind me what it stands for. I don't know. I just call it SASC. The Sexual Assault Support Center. That was game-changing for me coming here, and that was definitely one of the reasons that I advocated so strongly for, uh, about UBC to people back home who are looking at different Canadian institutions. I feel like the answers aren't always there. They're complex, and a lot of the time there's no easy route to get where you want and this is coming from two people who are very experienced with some of the different leadership structures on this campus. So it's a scary thought for me that someday we won't have Willie and Julia here at UBC. I know that there are so many bright and brilliant individuals here that we will be in wonderful hands. As a leader, I love to talk to people who've held my position in the past, people who understand the institution better than I do, and I'd love to hear what kind of advice you have for aspiring student leaders on this campus, maybe leaders in hibernation who, for whom this COVID year has, obviously I think we've all been emotionally out of sorts, but who are looking to get involved again, who are looking to reconnect with their communities, what kind of advice do you have for them? Go fail. <laughs> you're gonna fail. And then you're gonna fail again. And it's gonna keep sucking for a while and that is honestly that's part of the that's part of it i mean the amount of times i wrote briefs that didn't play well at work or i you know had meetings that went poorly or you know i would try and go and on like little mentoring chats with people and they just like never panned out i mean that's that's fine that's part of it like i think for a lot of us we're so terrified to go out and fail that it means that you know we're not going to want to savor those wins when they do happen but naturally I don't think that's the main advice I give to people I mean in a way like I'm doing this work because I believe firmly that it is the right thing to do I think it's probably fair it's probably just until someone else wants to call me in on that I mean fair but that's why I keep Julia around usually um, but yeah, there are people, you know, maybe in the not too distant future who are going to need some strong advocates for things. They're going to need people who like know beyond the base layer, who like, you know, know a context that, you know, you may not know. And I think if we can kind of afford those people in the future a bit of care and comfort by showing up for them, I mean, that's part of it. But yeah, Burnham, what do you think? I've always had this kind of open door policy of like, hey, you want to run something, do something, you know, interested in the Senate, AMS, like, let's get coffee, let's chat about it. And that's something that I, like, extend every single year. And I, anyone listening to the podcast right now, like, hit me up. Um, I'm always happy to have those conversations with people. Um, and it's led to, you know, some really great people in these new positions now. And that's thrilling to see. Um, but I think like in terms of like general 
advice, it'd be to like find people in your orbit who are similarly valued, similarly um, motivated, and trying to reach these similar goals as you, um, because it can be really lonely work, and it can be um, really, really useful to have people around you. It can be a competitive environment, but the sooner you realize that you know, students are just one small piece of this massive institutional puzzle where you're going to go up a lot more than just inner student politic conflict um, and that you really just need to be allies with the people around you and working together on a united front. Um, that kind of takes away this weird sort of competitive energy um, and really helps you in the long run for all the different battles you're going to face in the rest of the university. Yeah, I kind of realized, um, <laughs> I think competition, like especially when it comes to like advocacy is, it's pretty, it's kind of bullshit to be honest. Like everyone's looking towards the same goal. Like we all want like liberation and we want a decolonized structure and we want like we want equitable systems and inclusive systems. However, you know, you often have people who are in the same orbit actively competing. I mean, it's just interesting to kind of see and hear that. But I think Burnham, you bring up like such a good point. It's like, yeah, we need allies. We need people who are like supporting us. Um, but yeah, also um, for anyone who's also listening to the podcast, um, feel free to reach out to me as well if you want uh, to say hello or anything. Uh, first one's always on me. <laughs> I feel like we've been dancing around this topic of mentorship, but I haven't explicitly asked you anything about it. Mentorship to me is so, plays such an important role. And we've spoken about Manal Matani. I love her to bits. I really love her with my whole heart. And I, I'd love to hear either a story about a mentor you've had or a mentee, because I don't think we talk about it enough and it's important. I mean, like, who do I want to talk about? Like, okay, yeah, I, I guess I can start. Um, I mean, like, you naturally know who I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about um, my mentor, Steve, I think. Um, so for a lot of folks, um, they may not know this about me, but I grew up in a single-parent household with just my mom. And so um, I remember I went to therapy when I was um, pretty young. I think it was in grade nine, and they told me, um, you should look for men and masculine folks in your life that you know you want to embody sort of deal and so you know like i met steve because his daughter jane and um his son stephen were both in the same age as me and um you know he's a lawyer practices out in new west um you know like i very much grew up in a i grew up in an org i grew up in a family structure excuse me where i did not have healthy relationships with my with my parents, with my parents, with my father, etc. You know, I did not see healthy relationships. For me, the only experience that anyone ever um, kind of showcased, and well, excuse me, any sort of man in my life ever showcased was either anger or joy. Um, I remember um, for Steve, he was the person who kind of pushed me to want to go to university, who encouraged me, who said, you know, if you're thinking of going here, like, you should go, like, you know, like, I'll proofread your stuff, I'll take a look at it, you know, like, you are someone that I want to have around. And um, thanks for reminding me, I forgot to give him a call this afternoon as he was driving home from work, but I can always do that tomorrow because he's taking the day off. Um, but for me, um, 
one of the things that I value from my mentors is showcasing emotion in ways that are very prolific and very large for that matter. And I think having people who showcase emotion in very healthy ways, for instance, when I was chatting with Steve, um, when Anthony Bourdain passed away, um, I gave him a call and I was like, hey, are you doing okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, no, how are you doing? I saw the news, you saw the news, what's going on? And he's like, I'm not doing well, Will. And then we just had a conversation about it. And I think for a lot of men and masculine folks, you know, we don't talk about our emotions that often. So I think that's something that's really important to kind of bring up. Um, I mean, that's just one of my mentors. I mean, I could mention functionally anyone else who's had a big, like, you know, impact on me. I mean, Dr. Aftab Erfan from the UBC, no, sorry, who I met at the UBC Equity and Inclusion Office, who is now the Chief Equity Officer over at um, the City of Vancouver. I mean, I have never seen anyone radically love other people for who they are, ever. And I think that is something that almost always moves me to tears because I think she is one of those people who consistently fills from her cup and somehow manages to fill it at the same time. Gosh, I was tearing up as you were saying that because it was so moving. And and as you were speaking, the phrase that came to mind is like, this is what healthier masculinity looks like. I mean, we could have an entire conversation about healthier masculinity, but let's be completely honest here. I just wanna, I just wanna say to any men or mask folks on this, like who are listening, I was gonna say on this call because we're Zooming right now, but you know, anyone who's like listening on the podcast, when it comes to healthier masculinity, it's not even coming in tune with your emotions, it's just saying that you wanna do better. And I think you don't have to have a grand sweeping movement you're always trying to do better. I'm always trying to do better. I mean, it's an, it's an everyday thing. It's a habit. Julie, I wanna give you the floor in case you have any stories about mentorship before we move on to our last question. I think, I mean, I can talk about having a mentee because honestly, as soon as I was kind of in the door with the AMS, um, like I ran my entire campaign by myself. I was not, you know, a dynasty kind of situation or having a big group of people rallied around me trying to break into this weird little world. Um, and I made it a priority to be, you know, looking after people who are coming from, you know, different sort of experience levels and familiarity with the AMS and all these different places. Um, and I can speak such glowing things about the new VP Academic and University Affairs of the AMS, Ashana Bangu, who has been absolutely killing it. Um, and I remember sitting next to her in the debates for the Senate during AMS elections a couple of years ago. Um, and she was in her first year running for the Senate. And I was like blown away. She wins and she's just like on it the entire year. And like off the bat, I'm like looking at this girl and I'm like, all right, let's like, <laughs> let's, let's see where this is going because with a push in the right direction, she's going to be unstoppable. Um, so, you know, I got to work with Ashana on a number of different things in the Senate and I started um, sort of poking her to, to do more and to, to think about setting the bar higher because I just knew that she could achieve it. Um, 
and you know, look at her now, like on the cover of the Georgia Strait, um, and absolutely killing it with the return to campus advocacy for the AMS. And I was in a meeting with her the other day because we sit on a same committee in the Senate. And it's been a while since I've been um, in the same space as her. And there's, you know, obviously when you join the AMS and your entire nine to five is to be in meetings with the top administrators of the university, um, there's like a learning curve, but also you get so rehearsed and just in the zone. And um, just being in that meeting with her and watching just like, being floored by her confidence and assertiveness and just not taking no for an answer and it just oh, it fueled me um, and i am so lucky that i get to learn so much from her and get to be with her uh, on her journey through this crazy crazy year um, and i'm just so grateful oh. Why does it make me so emotional to hear people talk about those that they admire i feel I feel a kind of way about when I listen to people speak about and uplift their loved ones when that person is not in the room. I think it's I think it's so important. And I think that the way that you both are speaking about your experiences with mentorship right now, it feels like the perfect segue to talk about the title of this podcast, Love in Public. The title of this podcast makes reference to a powerful quote by Cornell West that justice is just what love looks like in public. I'd love to hear what the both of you have to say about it. And I also think it's interesting that a lot of guests on the show come on here and say, oh, Abril, when you said love in public, this is not what I thought we were going to be speaking about. And it goes in an entirely different direction. And that's what I love so much about it, that it is open to interpretation. I'd love to hear what that means to you. What does love in public look like to you? Yeah, uh, thinking about what love in public means. Honestly, fire name for a podcast, gotta say. Um, I think it's a really, I think it's a genius actually. I think that's actually quite wonderful. Because that's like, like I kind of like read it that way. I was like, oh yeah, it's like acts of love in public. That's kind of like what I assumed it was. I mean, for me, love in public is, I've mentioned this before, it's showing up for people. It's not, it's like it's showing up for people. It's, you know, like being there when they need you. But I also think it's like, those implicit things, right? It's like knowing how someone wants something done or, you know, knowing like, you know, what someone like needs and like kind of trying to be intuitive. I mean, for me, like my act of like love and care is, yeah, I'm a caricature, but it's like cooking for my friends. Like I love it dearly. I'm gonna be cooking for a couple friends tomorrow night. And you know, it's like, I think there's something there that like says like, not just to other people, but like, Actually, sorry, let me backtrack that. I think that when you love in public, you give others the permission to do the same. Because I think that is so necessary because I think for a lot of us, and like, you know, I speak, you know, only from my lived experience because it's kind of the only thing I'm qualified to talk about at the end of the day. I think for a lot of folks, we have been raised without love. And I think, to quote Bell Hooks, for instance, I mean, men and have forgotten how to love and like that is the consistent act of self-betrayal that patriarchy throws us into but i think if we are able to love in public whether or not that's like you know platonically like with your best friend like joking around you know getting on a podcast finally um or better yet you know saying to like friends of yours like hey don't worry about it you're able to come through whenever i mean 
I said to someone um, that I kind of knew I didn't kind of knew, but now I kind of know a little bit better. I said, like, they told me they were transferring to UBC. They said, you know, they're, you know, leaving their house in East Van at like 8 a.m., going home at 6 a.m. I was like, if you want, come on over to my apartment. I'm home after six every day. You know, whatever I'm cooking that night, I'll make sure I have an extra place setting. It's all good. And it's always a small acts of care in your community, out of your community, that I think do really constitute love in public. Gosh, I mean, I think specifically within this sort of institutional context, like this is podcast at a university, speaking to people within that university community. Um, love in public, like at UBC, within hostile institutions, within academia, is really just about like holding each other up, lifting each other up if necessary, carrying each other along if someone needs a break. Like it's making sure that you know we're all kind of joined together and no one's really getting left behind we're not letting anyone um you know fall behind and we are creating the spaces of support and care um, that are necessary to survive like to be you know unapologetically you know supportive and caring for others and all of these different pieces that are just so um you know, in contradiction to this entire institution. Um, I think that that can be quite radical. I feel like your answers are gonna stay with me long after this conversation is over, and I mean that. Will and Julia, I wanna thank the both of you so much for being here today and for holding space for their co this conversation. Are there any last thoughts before we close out today? Thank you for being such a wonderful host and also inviting us into this space of uh, shared vulnerability, right? This was really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us um, and making us say nice things about each other for the last hour. I mean, yeah, we're going to spend the rest of the night tearing each other down, but yeah. I, I'm just grateful to have been witness to it. It has been such a pleasure to all of our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and this has been Love in Public. Today's episode was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at the University of British Columbia. It was produced by Moses Caliboso. The music you heard on today's show was created by Ben Robinson. And while we're here, I'd like to take a moment and recognize our unsung hero, Alex Miller from UBC Learning Commons for helping us out with the tech we needed to make today's conversation happen.